Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... We've Got Mail! This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic uh, for the purposes of this particular podcast. You may address me as Rockmeister McCool. It was a cool nickname. A... I'm sorry, you can't a, see the quotes. A, a, Nick a, cool. a cool nickname uh, that I, yeah. I came up with for uh, came up with for myself. Yeah, because uh, you can do that. Yeah, you can you can invent your own nicknames. Like if I, if I wish I'd known that, I thought I let everyone else decide I was called Bibbs. That Look, was not my choice. I would have been like Nitro or no. Nobody else decided that that man should be called Sting. All right, he clearly. <laughs> came up with that name himself i, I want you to call the... me i want you to call me sting <laughs> i just want to see no, that no we're not gonna call you no i'm sting now i forget what You're is st- i forget i forget the, how the scene actually goes but there's this great bit in rocket man the oh. elton john biopic where elton john is like i forget what his original name was and it's like i decided to go by a different name i want everyone to call me elton when his band member says that's my name I'm like yeah <laughs> There's a, a, a rather amusing uh, uh, Scottish comedy film called Killing Bono, which is about somebody who knew Bono and oh, I remember like this, yeah. kind of playfully uh, like plotted a staged this plot to kill him, but not really, as is just sort of this jilted band member. But there is a scene in that movie where uh, Bono chooses his name. Also, my name is Bono now, and he puts on the shades for the first time. He's like, "This is me. I'm Bono, and this is my look." what that's just it you're you're bono now yep i'm bono he goes and sits up there on a bus and he just sort of sits a couple seats up like fine you're bono (laughs) (laughs) and i'm the edge shut up (laughs) we're not doing this for everyone the the edge got in before the cutoff okay fine the edge i'm nitro nope no more that's it (laughs) don't get to be mr purple the guy in another job's name is Mr. <laughs> Purple. All right. We got to get going. This right. is We've Got Mail, the episode where we like to dedicate all our time to you. So going off the rails right off the bat was, was a bad move, and we feel bad a about little, it. A little a bit of amusement for, for ourselves. All anyway, right. This is our letters episode. You write in. The email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. And uh, we try to read your emails. read as many as we can. We can't always get to them all. But uh, we, we answer questions. We talk about... Uh, news of the day if you're really fascinated by it or theories trends in movie history favorite movies about so-and-so whatever we're mm-hmm. kind of open uh and but again we can't read every single letter however if you if you ask us to go back a really long time and read <laughs> a letter that we missed mm-hmm. we may do it and we're gonna start off right now yeah, so with a letter is, from b peterson uh yeah b peterson uh contacted us on twitter and said hey i i wanted to write in something you said recently but i actually wrote about this very topic like way back in may so read that letter so we are we're gonna yeah. read a letter from back in may of 2020 uh written by b peterson uh the letter goes uh, dear cinnamon and the fiendish dr zoltan um uh, long story yeah um You've long suggested turning off Nymphomaniac Volume 2 10 seconds before the end. I'm not sure uh, how we're supposed to know when that is. Uh, <laughs> uh, surely you have like a time code now. If, if you see a part right at the end of the movie before the credits that stinks, mm. pretend you didn't see that. <laughs> that's, that's the only way that movie works. Because apparently the last 10 seconds somehow ruined the whole thing. I haven't seen it. Volume 1 was plenty. Uh, I myself have edited a couple of films for experimental purposes. I edited the last scene of The Social Network. 
so that the lawyer is just telling Mark to settle and it's not a redemption for him. Been a good end, better ending right? if you don't remember what, I'm, what, what we're talking about and this is something that i've found that some people have like completely forgotten how the social network ended mm. because i i did like list like the best movies of the decade or whatever and i didn't put the social network on there mm. a lot of people are like what about the social network i'm like because the last scene in the movie is rashida jones telling mark zuckerberg he's not an asshole the movie begins with somebody calling him an asshole and that's the scene that everyone points to as like this incredible bit of writing and the point of the movie the punctuation at the end of the film is that he's not. Yeah. And I'm like, but he is. But he still is. It's a terrible ending. Look, David Fincher really needs to make The Social Network 2 catch up with Mark Zuckerberg today. He actually does. I would love to see that, that movie. That's the movie that needs to be made I right now. I would love to see that movie. Yeah. Uh, so the lawyer is just telling Mark to settle. And frankly, the whole movie sits better because of it. Yeah. The same effect occurred for me for Blue is the Warmest Color after simply lifting out all the graphic, extremely male-gazy sex scenes. Yeah. Uh, I tried editing all the problematic elements out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I gradually realized that all I was being left with was a whiny man whining. <laughs> so I scrapped that project. Uh, NB, the last sentence Whitney just read was written in a letter. This, uh, as these as these words, they do not represent his views or opinions. I'm not allowed to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I work for Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, this, you were just reading a letter out loud. That I was just not, reading a letter. That does not uh, reflect your opinions in uh, any way, shape, or form. My, my, I have no comment on yep. the, those those uh, words on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, all of this is to ask, aside from the legal aspects, what is our right to edit a finished film? If it results in a more successful or less problematic piece of art, could that edited piece replace the original? Or would it have to be a separate entity altogether? How far would one go with re-editing re a picture until we're looking at a ship of Theseus paradox? What historical precedents have been set regarding this matter? So many questions. Thank you. See you in the next one. B. Peterson. Well, uh, thank this you should, for writing that letter that's back a really, in May, B. Um, that's a really, really good letter. That actually re relates to a couple of things. We recently talked about Infomaniac uh, mm -hmm. in our recent episode of The Iron List, where we talked about the best movies ever made about the subject of sex. Um, and we brought up that same topic once again that we feel the ending doesn't work. Um, uh, for those who may uh, uh, be unfamiliar with uh, the ship of Theseus mm -hmm. uh, that was discussed at the end of that, it's an old uh, sort of philosophical riddle uh, where uh, if you have a boat mm -hmm. and uh, you gradually replace every plank of wood in that boat piece by piece until and gradually, not all at once. Until finally, there is no original piece of that boat, but it still looks like the boat. Mm. Is that the same boat? Mm. There's not a great answer to that question. It's, and it's very, a, very much about like attitude and perception. And we've discovered a biological parallel to that. Uh, your your cells regenerate yeah. uh, in your body. You shed old cells, you grow new cells, and that happens every. I think the the number is every, every seven years or so. Yeah. Uh, you you're now completely new cells. Question. Yeah. In Time Cop, mm -hmm. does Jean-Claude Van Damme go back more oh than God. seven years? Does he go back more than seven years? Because if he goes back more than seven years, the whole ending with Ron Silver touching Ron Silver and exploding wouldn't happen. Because they're different people, yeah. They would, biologically, they'd be different people. Uh, they don't, you know what? The movie Time Cop, yes. uh, curiously, didn't think of this. Really? <laughs> you, I thought they would, would have really that, thought that shit you, you out. You would think that Time Cop would be this steel trap of scientific <laughs> theory, but uh, as it turns out, no. <laughs> Curious that. 
Uh, as for uh, uh, fan re-edits, um, as editing technology has become more ubiquitous and can be put in the hands of just any common consumer, uh-huh. people can re-edit films just on their laptops now at home just for fun, as B. Peterson is doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it uh, can be an editing mm, project. It can be mm. for a class or something. A lot of people uh, make fake trailers for things yeah, as editing yeah. exercises. Uh, well, those, some, some, those projects often leak out onto the internet. One of my favorites was Shining. The uh, the feel good family oh, yeah. comedy or like feel good family dra- dramedy of The Shining. Yeah, they took all the funny bits mm. or like the bits where Jack yeah. Nicholson is like, smiling in The Shining Jack, and made Jack him... just can't finish his book. And then they added one line of dialogue where he's like Danny's new foster father and raising this child made him a better person. I, I think it, they like, play Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. It's amazing. Yeah, it looks like it's a Cameron Crowe movie. Like yeah. it's really really great. Um, that's a really really fun one. Um, various bits of re-editing of other classics, often hmm. with no regard or little regard for original intent, has happened throughout cinema. Yeah. Uh, people have been doing that for forever. What was that sh- uh, show Joe Dante did? That was like a big clip show where oh, it was like this ever evolving. Oh, that's right. He he did it. He did these live shows. Yeah, and he would because he took all of these like trailers and tidbits and reels and yeah, there's just a... created this whole thing. There was this when video technology first became available to consumers, like in the late seventies and early eighties. This became a huge kind of underground practice, mm-hmm. and uh, it was really kind of the start of of what came to be known as culture jamming. When I was a kid, oh yeah, which was sort of re-editing popular media in such a way where it almost seems like you're unlocking secret messages that are hidden inside. If you if you yeah. saw it all as a unit and remixed it a little bit, you would see an entire new. Uh, message and a whole new narrative emerge out of all of these clips. It was a big part of the Church of the Subgenius. Uh, and videos would be released like that. Uh, you can still to this day find things like TV carnage and everything is terrible. These people who try to find uh, really odd clips throughout all of popular media and re-editing them as these kind of art projects, essentially. These kind of uh, uh, meditations on what media is. Mm. I've always found those things are really uh, exciting. Interesting. Uh, It was being done in film, though. Uh, Steve Martin and Carl Reiner made a comedy called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. That's a fun one. Where uh, they take clips from a lot of old noir films and edit the Steve Martin character into a drama. So it looks like he's starring opposite Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, and Alan Ladd and all these other great movie stars. Mm. And uh, it's it's a little spotty and mm. the thing with Carl Reiner is he's often really brilliant but every once in a while I'll do something like really sexist or something for like um, one scene the, I mean it was a different time it was a different yeah, time I mean, just saying every once if, 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 I recommend watching it because it's a fun editing exercise and homage to classic Hollywood mm. but you're going to run into a couple of scenes where you're just like oh that wasn't funny yeah it's just a, the, the, the humor doesn't play anymore yeah but mostly uh, and, yeah, mostly um, and speaking of things that don't play anymore uh, Woody Allen did it uh, there's, oh, yeah. there's a film called What's Up Tiger Lily where yeah. he uh, oh that's one where the original is like no one talks about it anymore yeah it was mm-hmm. he took a a like a, a some a, Hong Kong action film it was like it was like a it was a James Bond kind of knockoff and mm-hmm. he like re-edited it slightly yeah, d- dubbed a lot of yeah. his own dialogue and yeah. yeah it's it's it was it was a curious experiment mm-hmm. um one so, of the, so it's been going on for a while, uh, yeah. but now out in the world, people can re-edit films all they want. Yeah. And it's unfortunately what we consider like a finished project is now just a legal matter. Yeah. Uh, whether or not it works better. And uh, I, I went to a screening um, hosted by uh, one of the, the workers at Cinephile. He re-edited 
Inland Empire into a 90 minute film. <laughs> it's like uh, Inland Empire is really, really good. I like it, but I feel like there's too much of it and it's not like really focused. So I just sort of trimmed it and kind of streamlined it in a way I like. Yeah. David Lynch would hate that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He would hate that. And the studio wouldn't let you distribute that because they own it. Exactly. But if you're going to remix something, you can now. Yeah, it, it, it can be done just mm. as a as an art project in mm. an unto itself. And sometimes you create something that is entirely new and different. Uh, one of the first, I think maybe the first silent movie I ever saw was Metropolis, but specifically the version by Giorgio Moroder. Mm. Giorgio Moroder is this really fun uh, musician uh, did a lot of pop music mm. in Europe, and then he produced some of the biggest soundtracks of all time. He produced a soundtrack to Top Gun, mm. one of the great movie soundtracks. Say what you will about the movie, the soundtrack is a killer. Uh, and he wanted to do a he wanted to re-release Metropolis with a score by like the hottest musicians of the day, and we're talking people like Queen, Queen, and David Bowie, and uh, uh, Pat Benatar, and very very now mm. um and uh what he discovered is that the movie was really not only incomplete but just like a mess mm. and so he ended ended up not just adding a new soundtrack but sort of trying to recreate at the time it was the most complete version of the film mm. but musically and i think in the tinting that he added uh it was so dramatically different from any other version anyone had ever seen in metropolis that it was quite controversial mm. Like, okay, on one hand, this is cool. On the other hand, no. Yeah. <laughs> don't, think, don't think this is what Fritz Lang um, intended. Yeah, so that... it's, it's its own entity, and it's really fascinating, and it plays really good, but it's its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the Marauder version of Metropolis might be... Might be one of the only like re edits of a film that's also considered a, an official version. Yeah, I mean a lot. Of, you said a lot of people can, were considering it sacrilegious, but it was theatrically released mm -hmm. as its own entity. And, by, and we mean re edits from people who didn't originally. Make that's right. It. As yeah. in not made, but like you could talk about like how many how many edits of Blade Runner are there now? Like fifteen. Yeah. Uh, but Ridley Scott's responsible for all but the first one. Yeah, yeah. He and he's he's been tinkering and retinkering. Same with Friedkin and a lot of hit and The Exorcist. Like he goes back and. He keeps trying to futz with it. You know, there, there's two ways of looking at it. You can sort of have the uh, the purists look, which is, you know, you get one shot, re -edit, you know, edit the film you want, release it that way, and that's that's where it stands in posterity. And then there's the people who say, well, if it's your film, you can re-edit however you like. And that's what, you know, George Lucas does with Star Wars. That's what, you know, Friedkin and, and, uh, and Ridley Scott do. Mm-hmm. And then there's the third, but it's never happened to my knowledge, other than Metropolis, where a, a, essentially a fan edit, a new edit of a film made years after the fact without any input from the original filmmakers yeah. became the new standard version of that film. Again, you remove things like studio pressure where like mm. they reshot the ending of Magnificent Ambersons away from Orson Welles. Yeah. That's its own thing censored versions of film sometimes the censored footage is gone forever mm. but yeah no the the interesting the most interesting one i can think of and it's still within the studio system is um uh the peter bogdanovich film at long last love which was lambasted when it came out and it's quite bad i've seen it's, it it's really not a good film yeah. but uh, it's it's an attempt to recreate the sort of breezy musical charms of a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie, but using, but using 1970s talent like Burt Reynolds and Madeline Kahn. 
And as a, as a premise, it's not bad. As a movie, it kind of is. It's, and it's, it's lazy and interminable. And uh, it's been like re-edited a few different times. And uh, for a long time, it was unavailable on home video. And then apparently, Peter Bogdanovich saw that it was on Netflix and said, "Listen, it's been a long time. We're going to rewatch it." And he found out that he actually kind of liked it, and also that it wasn't his cut. And he didn't recognize the cut. And the studio had done another one. And barely he likes that cut. All right. It's not. He didn't know what the hell he was watching. (laughs) So these things just keep happening. Anyway. uh, But that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's move. Oh, oh, and uh, please, please uh, check out B. Peterson's podcast network. Oh, the Screens Margins. The Screens Margins. uh, Is is B. Peterson's podcast. Yeah. And they're doing all kinds of awesome stuff over there. Yeah, like, if, if you like our going, if you like our deep like the, dives, yeah. you should check out Screens Margins. They're at yeah. Screens Margins on Twitter, patreon.com slash screens margins. Mark Edward Hoyk uh, from mm-hmm. the Schmodown uh, co-hosts some stuff over there. They're doing really cool work. So please, yeah, please check out their stuff. I highly recommend it. Uh, here, here's a letter from Will. Hi, Will. Hi, Will. Uh, greetings, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. K U U L E. Every spelling is correct. Always correct. Um, I just listened to your Iron List episode for the best movies about sex and wanted to share some of my picks that were not talked about. Great. In we ordered this. We, I love these kinds of letters. If you didn't listen um, to the episode, hmm. uh, Whitney and I talked about the best films that we thought of were about sex, but we freely admit that sex is a hugely broad topic. And there was bound to be stuff that we missed. Yeah. So we really wanted, we want people to mm. come in and chime in. So thank you so much. So, uh, and these are not numbered, just, just a list. Uh, Itu Mama Tambien. Mm. Well, like, now now I consider Roma to be uh, his masterpiece, Alfonso Cuaron's Itu Mama Tambien is a magnificent movie. And its depictions of sexuality as well as the rifts it can place between individuals always captivates me. Uh, yeah, that is a good one. Mm. Uh, Itu Mama Tambien. It's a really sweaty coming of age story. Uh, Carnal Knowledge. I've not seen Carnal Knowledge. I haven't seen this uh, in a long while, time. Well, very, quote, controversial at the time, Mike Nichols' Carnal Knowledge has somewhat been lost to time, but I think it's terrific, featuring some beautifully restrained direction and some amazing performances. Art uh, Garfunkel is in that movie, if memory serves. I believe he is. Yeah, interesting. He, he actually had a lot of a lot of film roles. Yeah, he's just not talked about very often. Because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, he's not a good actor. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Uh, Shame from 2011. I didn't see Shame. Uh, I am a heterosexual male, but oh, Michael Fassbender, you tempt me. <laughs> Otherwise, this movie is depressing as hell. Yeah, it is. It, it's it's really a wallow, that one. Uh, short Bus. This made your runners yeah, up. This is in my runners up list. Uh, John Cameron Mitchell's Short Bus is one of the most experimental depictions of sex I've ever seen in cinema. Truly pushes the bounds of what sexuality in cinema can be without ever feeling exploitative. An underrated film. It's, it's like all of uh, uh, John Cameron Mitchell's films. It, it's really... Uh, strangely emotionally earnest it's very disarming uh even though it has explicit sex on camera it's more about kind of the the vulnerabilities of the characters than it is about mm. you know the the actual prurient nature of what they're going through and and it is about the prurient stuff too but how that is tied into our emotional well-being sure uh also under the skin oh uh, that I, uh, that's we, an interesting choice I'm actually, um, in retrospect i'm surprised you left that off you really well, like that movie a lot. I, I do. I like it a lot. I, I wouldn't call it a sex movie, though. So I think it's about sex. Will okay, has we'll to say yeah, I'm While not directly about sex, Scarlett Johansson's character actively wields sex as her weapon of choice, slowly unraveling the greater humanity within her glorious fashion. I love this movie and think it features some of the most bizarre and inventive, quote, sex scenes ever to grace the silver screen. Uh, yeah. Sex lies in videotape. Mm. Uh, between this crash and secretary, James Spader has some explaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, he doesn't my, have to explain himself. 
He's, he's, he's cool. He's in interesting movies. Yeah. He's in interesting movies. Some of them are mm. sexy. And and lastly, don't look now. Once again, like Under the Skin, the film is not directly about sex, but the character very much uses sex as a method of, for coping with grief. In mm. fact, Warren Beatty, who was dating Julie Christie at the time, vehemently demanded that her sex scenes with Donald Sutherland be cut as they appeared too realistic. Yeah. That doesn't indicate power of sex in this movie. I don't know what else does. Anyway, thank you for reading my letter. You are all my absolute favorite film critics. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and remain a constant inspiration. Sincerely, Will. That, that's an honor that mm. you would say those things. Um, yeah, I, the one... Okay, I haven't seen all those movies. Uh-huh. The one that I have seen that I'm going, I don't know if it belongs, is Don't Look Now, which is this incredible horror movie from the 1970s, directed by Nicholas Rogue, starring Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Their child, their young child dies at the beginning of the movie, mm. and they grow estranged, and they go on a trip to Venice, but it turns out there's, like, ghosts, Cultists, and maybe yeah, and maybe some like serial killer in the canals, and how it all comes together, I will not ruin for you, but it's freaky. Uh, but uh, there's this really well-known sex scene between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, which is ex- very explicit, but it actually isn't very sexy. Mm. It's actually, it's intercut with them, like, tidying up afterwards and putting on their clothes. And it's kind of about how they're still having sex, but they're not connecting. Yeah. yeah it's it's like... great storytelling. Mm. I don't know if it's really about the sex as so much as that one scene is, though. Well, and, and you said that that one scene is pretty notorious, and it does inform the rest of the movie in, yeah. in a really interesting sort of way. Yeah. It's, 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 you can, you can mm. debate it. It's just the one where I'm going, maybe not. Mm. But and other the, than that, yeah, that's a good yeah, list. And under the skin, I, I've, I've maintained that this was sort of Scarlett Johansson kind of coming to terms with her place in sort of the movie star firmament. firmament mm. Yeah. And the way we tend to... Uh, it's it's sort of an examination of the male gaze, yes. more or less, because yeah. it is about a, a a woman who looks like Scarlett Johansson seducing men off of the street. Mm. But, but then instead of mm. taking them to have sex, mm. she, she takes them to an infinite void. Yeah, she, she like plunks them down in this liquid black void, and that's like sort of the sex scenes in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating yeah. film. Yeah, it, it's really, really good. I loved yeah. Under it's, the Skin. It's not my favorite, but man, is it interesting and is it worth seeing. Like, yeah, it's really, really, really cool. I, I was just Brian Grazer did that one. and uh, Yeah. Brian Grazer, yeah. Is it, is it Brian Grazer? Jonathan? Jonathan Grazer. Jonathan Grazer. Brian Grazer is the, the producer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's a really good movie, though, and, and uh, Jonathan Grazer has only done that. He did Birth as well, which is another really fascinating movie, which yeah. he did more movies more frequently. Uh, Jonathan... Uh, uh, and, Glazer. Uh, That's what I said. You said Grazer. Grazer. Glazer. Sorry. Jonathan Glazer. To be clear, Jonathan Glazer. Jonathan Glazer made Under the Skin. Yes. Just. Brian Brian Grazer produces Ron Howard movies. Nobody's perfect. We're going to leave it in the show. (laughs) Here's a letter from Fab. Hi, Fab. Hi, Fab. Uh, Hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Uh, To the person who wrote in about the scene of a man having his hand nailed to a chair with a nail gun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, somebody wrote in last week uh, asking... We, we sort of outsourced this to our listeners to yeah. see if we could figure out a, a mystery scene from a, a yeah. listener's head. Uh, just to recap, a lot of people, like especially the older you get, the more of these you have. This mm. one thing from a movie you remember, but you haven't seen it in 30 years, and so you're a little hazy on what the hell it was, and it's a little difficult to describe, and, mm. and then maybe one day you find out what it was, and you go, that's it! That that's is, the connection! I remember seeing yeah. this! Uh, so, and that was used to be the purview of the video store clerk mm. uh that was like the coolest thing you got to do as a video store clerk was got to solve these little riddles 
Um, and uh, now we're doing it on the podcast. So uh, we're, we will outsource these if we can't recognize them. Yeah. And so there was one a scene with a nail gun. Let's talk about it. Uh, well, Fab says, I'm thinking the movie is Color of Night. Uh, oh. it, it, the steamy 90s thriller, thriller with Bruce Willis. Uh, Nails Through Hands was also a mystery scene from uh, from my own childhood memory, but I saw Color of Night recently for a podcast, uh, How Did This Get Made? Uh-huh. And my mystery was solved. It's steamy, kind of cringy, so bad it's good, batshit crazy, worth a watch. Sincerely, Fab. It is a very, yeah. very strange film. Isn't it from Richard Rush, the guy who did uh, The Stuntman? I believe it was. Which is weird because The Stuntman is an amazing motion picture. Yeah, I saw it for the first time recently for, for this podcast. And Color of Night is not good interesting i guess but not good mm-hmm. um so that might be it let us know uh uh to the people who wrote in let us know if that's what you were thinking of mm-hmm. uh i believe we also had several of the people they said there was another movie they were trying to remember about a person with completely pale skin mm-hmm. uh screaming in fear and a lot of people theorize that it might be the film powder uh which is plausible so mm-hmm. uh, let us know if that's it if not we will mm-hmm. keep looking uh, powder. I, I liked it until I learned about the director. Um, yeah, let's not speak of that. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from uh, Melissa. Hello, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I really enjoyed listening to your latest mail episode, and you talked about how there should be major awards for stunts in films. Uh, there are the Taurus World Stunt Awards, which aired on TV, I think Fox, in the early 2000s. Hmm. I had seen some of it, and it's exactly like what you said, watching clip reels of unheralded stunt performances performers, excuse me, doing dangerous stuff like high falls or being set on fire. One award went to a driver for doing a car stunt in the Fast and the Furious where she doubled for Michelle Rodriguez and weaved her car in and out from under a truck during a chase scene. Another part had performers in protective gel do a runway walk while on fire. Wow. It was featured in the documentary Double Dare. Uh, I've seen that documentary, um, Mm. which... uh, which about the stunt women Jean, Jeannie Epper and Zoe Bell. It's yeah. also really cool to see those performances record performers recognized for their risky and dangerous work. All the best, Melissa. Thank you for reminding um, us about that. I'd forgotten mm-hmm. that that was. And there are awards for just about everything in this in the movie industry. Yeah. A lot of them don't get the attention that the Academy Awards do. So it's cool that they aired that. I actually forgot that they aired that. Mm. It sounds like an awesome show. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember any of this. It does sound like something that would have aired on Fox, Fox in like or the late nineties or something. Yeah, Spike TV would have been all over that, and I'm sure it would have been very, you know, chest hair, testosterone. It's like drink your monster energy drink and yeah. set somebody on fire. I remember uh, I was watching uh, when I first moved into an apartment out of college, and I had roommates, and we were just mm. finding our way in the world, and we had basic cable. Ooh, mm. What a treat. And we had Spike TV. And one night on Spike TV at like 11 o'clock, they had a televised Paper Rock Scissors tournament. Oh my God. It was like the movie Over the Top, but with like, it was like less, less badass. (laughs) Like it was, no, it was actually weirdly captivating. And I lost like 10 bucks on the final game. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I I have never had cable in my life. I didn't grow up with it. So I, I, I talked to other kids. It's like, oh, yeah, do you remember growing up watching Nickelodeon? Nope. That was cable TV. I watched network TV and UHF stations. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was completely detached from the, the cable world. Uh, and that, as such, I also missed out on things like The Sopranos and Six Feet Under and all the premium stuff. Eh, you missed nothing now. Uh, so, yeah, I still haven't seen a single frame of The Sopranos. It's not an important show. It, uh, no. <laughs> I, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, so, but as, as a, even though I missed out on maybe some cultural touchstones, I'm a little proud that I did not ever fall into the 
pit of reality shows oh, that were on yeah, uh, on, on just littering the TV landscape in like the late nineties and early two thousands. Just that was never a, an option for me. And I never went that way. I never found out what it was all about. I never saw spike and I think I'm better for it. Yeah. You, we, you saw the best of spike. You saw blade to the series when I canceled. That's right. That, I, I saw one spike series. I saw blade. And actually, you know what? Wasn't bad. Wasn't bad. Sticky yeah. fingers is a good blade. Actually, he was a good blade. I'm gonna throw that out there. Just remind everybody: there was already been another blade. Oh. Sticky fingers, and he was fine. He was, he was just fine. Yeah. All right. Let's I, move on. I, I, I'd have to look it up, but I remember the the his co-star, the other the female lead of that show. Oh yeah, what was her name? Uh, was was really really good in that show. As well. uh, let's give credit where credit is due. Hold on. Oh, not. I looked up Spike instead of Blade. Blade. <laughs> Blade. Spike Blade. Oh no! I just looked up Puppet Master. Jill Wagner. Jill Wagner is really really good in in the Blade TV series. She she absolutely is. Mm. And uh, where could we find her? Mm. Uh, she's doing the Mystery 101 TV movies for Hallmark. Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty good letter uh, gig if you can get it. She was also in such Hallmark films as Christmas Cookies, A Harvest you've, Wedding. You've seen Christmas Cookies. I right? have seen Christmas Cookies. I think I've seen Christmas Cookies. Uh, letter, Christmas in Evergreen, Letters to Santa, Christmas in Evergreen, Tidies, uh, Tidings of Joy, mm. uh, Hearts of Winter, which is a little bit more general. Christmas of Evergreen. Yeah, she was also did a lot of Teen Wolf. The so, riddle, the riddle of the traveling skull. Um, <laughs> which is actually the title of a Harry Stephen Keeler novel. Look nice. up Harry Stephen Keeler, you'll like him. Moving on. Uh, here's a letter from Tom with an exclamation point. Tom! Hello, Tom. Uh, hello, both. <laughs> hello. Hi. Uh, first of all, I must thank you for the hours, and I really mean hours of entertainment you provide for myself and all of your fans slash listeners around the world. You're welcome. Thank you. Someone pointed uh, out on, online listening. that we did like 10 hours of, mm. of shows last week alone. Yeah. And I was like, I was literally depressed before <laughs> I read that tweet that we weren't doing enough. <laughs> we were not putting out <laughs> enough content. I still don't feel like we aren't. Oh, sorry. I, I said the C word. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we'll we'll, sl- we'll erase slept. it from the lexicon eventually. Yeah. Uh, your podcast have been so valuable to me during my lockdown. So thank you for the entertainment and the hundreds of movie slash TV recommendations you have provided across your catalog of podcasts. Thank that's, you. Uh, we, that's the least we can hope for. Uh, now my question. I love your podcast only the best. It's my favorite podcast of yours. Mm. And I'm a huge sucker for the Oscars and awards shows in general. My question is, have you ever considered doing a bracket-style knockout tournament with all of the Best Picture winners to determine the ultimate Best Picture winner? <laughs> Speaking of Spike TV. Um, I think this could provide a really nice recap after you made your way through every year of Oscar nominees, as well as a fun exercise to see the both of you debate which movie deserves to advance to be in the next stages and so on. <laughs> Movies could be seeded based on their IMDb score. Uh, not ideal, but every yeah. older movie has a Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic. Not every uh, movie has a Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic score. I would happily create the brackets if you wanted. Again, I love hearing you both debate and defend your movies, <laughs> and I love your list-based content. Uh, this was just an idea I had. I was wondering if you'd ever do podcasts of this nature. I know you have a thousand other podcasts on the go too. So I totally understand if you feel as if this may take up too much time. Thank you both again from the bottom of my heart. All the best. Tom. Tom, thank you so much for writing in. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what he's talking about over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we have a podcast called only the best where Whitney and I are in the process of reviewing every single film ever nominated. Mm-hmm. For best picture, and it's a pretty time-consuming process. And sometimes I wish we had fewer podcasts just so we could get through that one quicker because I love that show. Mm. Um, but uh, in any case, 
yeah, that's been quite a journey. We're still in the 19... We actually just started the 1940s. Mm. Um, and uh, But the question is, it could, would we be interested in doing like a bracket-style podcast challenge? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that's not Whitney's bag. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd do it if you really want, but <coughs> no, that, that those, those sorts of debates aren't uh, aren't don't interest me so much. We, um, we had a really good time on the Screen Drafts podcast last summer when we did... Mm. Uh, sort of a competitive top t- uh, seven list, I think, mm-hmm. of the best when animals attack movies. That's right. Yeah, we did. That was fun. That and was pretty fun. I would love to go back on screen drafts again. If you know the people mm-hmm. at screen drafts, please tell them to call me. <laughs> I loved that show. That was we'll, a real fun show to be we'll, a part of. We'll come back. We'll do it. Yeah. Just just tell yeah. us. Please. Um, <laughs> no, so the, maybe the on idea, something like that, that'd be fun, but I don't know. The, the problem is we are critics and the, the idea of like pitting films against one another. Well, fun isn't really criticism. It's just sort of a game, but it is kind mm. of built into the Oscars. That's true. That, uh, yeah. Let's choose what the best film is. Uh, something I've always wanted that it, along this line is uh, a Rotten Tomatoes master score. Like what is take everything that's been uh, reviewed yeah. on, on Rotten Tomatoes, every single film, all hunt, all thousands, thousands and thousands of films and TV mm-hmm. titles. Yeah. And average out the Rotten Tomatoes score. What's the average Rotten Tomatoes score for it, all of uh, all of entertainment right now? Where does it stand? What is the master score? If is it a is it is entertainment fresh? Or is it rotten now? <laughs> okay, I love that idea. Yeah. It's like, what, what, what's the running score right now? Well, for 54%, a lot of it sucks, doesn't it? We need to work harder on that. Um, That's hilarious. I, I yeah. really do like that I, I, And, and when, when uh, our, our colleague Matt Atchity was running Rotten Tomatoes, he's not doing it anymore. Yeah. Uh, I suggested that to him and he said, no. We're never doing that. That's a terrible idea. It's like, no, it's great. I want the the, the one big like is is it a big tomato right in the middle or is it a, is it well a, if it's not a five day, then yeah. if, if if it's not like because again obviously it's it's fresh or not fresh that's the mm. whole Rotten Tomatoes uh, way but there's a percentage score and I think if the percentage isn't at least somewhere around fifty then mm. that's not average anymore. No, <laughs> and and uh, the way Rotten Tomatoes works is. If it's a six out of ten, they consider that fresh. Yeah, anything over sixty percent mm. is a technically fresh mm. movie. Fifty nine percent or lower, you get a you get a Rotten Tomato, yeah, and that's and that's uh, Rotten Tomatoes' own dictate. That's, yeah, they that's something they came is. up with. They decide what that is. And uh, the the and again to recap really quickly, the critics get to choose whether or not their own reviews are rotten or fresh yeah, when some, they submit it to Rotten. Tomatoes. Sometimes the editors do that for the critics, but it is yeah, supposed yeah. to be decided by the people submitting the the thing. So. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, uh, but it does raise the fun question though. And, uh, I'm curious, have you seen every film ever that ever won best picture or there's no. still blank spots? Okay. There's, there's still, still some blank spots. Blank spots. Still some blank spots. Fair enough. I think the biggest one might be from here to eternity. I haven't seen that. Film. I never saw from here to eternity. No shit. Okay. Well, uh, out of curiosity off the top of your head, mm-hmm. if you had to pick like the two or three best, best picture winners. The, uh, oh, the, of the winners? Of the winners. Only the oh, winners. And well, I know this is a big ask. This is yeah. off the top of your head. What are like the first three that come to your mind? Oh golly, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Okay, it's kind of it's kind of a tough ask. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot to mm. process. I know Ben Hur. Okay. Um, cuckoo's Nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's right. Trying try to like come into it a little bit sideways, not sure. just any of the, the, the more expected ones. Yeah. Um, hmm. 
do it, man. I believe in you. <laughs> Moonlight. Okay. Those three. That's a good one. Uh, I would go All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. I was thinking about that while you were while you were thinking. Mm. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's it's not, it is tough. It's not easy. Yeah. I'll, I'll say Rocky. Mm. I think it is the, much like Ben-Hur, it's the quintessential like Oscar-y kind of movie. Yeah. Uh, but it's really fucking good. Like, I love Rocky to pieces. Uh, so I'll say Rocky and fuck it. I'll also say Moonlight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Damn good movie, yeah. honestly. So anyway, um, but yeah, fun, uh, hmm. fun thing to think about. Uh, no, who knows? Maybe we'll, maybe we'll change our tune when the time comes, when we actually catch yeah. up. It'll be a while. Uh, I think an interesting, uh, way to do brackets would be, uh, like, one podcast per debate. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I don't know how we could come up with the, the, the actual brackets because sometimes, sometimes a, a film that's not very good will win round after round after round. Whereas, mm. uh, something much better would be eliminated early just cause it was like up against something much better. Here's what we do just to simplify it. Uh, first and last. Mm. So like the first wave it's wings versus parasite. Oh, there you go. If we, we did kind it of, now. Kind of work it in. Yeah. Meet and meet in the middle. And that would be an interesting conversation because those films actually don't have a lot to do with each other. <laughs> they both deal with class, kind of, but like no, parasites. One's, one's, more... one's war story. One's yeah. like, yeah, the sort of like pulpy class that, metaphor. That's, that's and... pretty apples to oranges, actually. Mm-hmm. And it'd be an interesting conversation because Wings is fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Like no, no disrespect to Parasite, which is also fucking awesome. And one of the best picks they've had for Best Picture in a while. Moonlight notwithstanding, like those are like the two most interesting ones I think in the last decade. Uh, Wings is a fucking killer. Wings yeah. is a great fucking movie. So that I'm not actually 100 percent sure what I choose there offhand. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway, that's a fun thing to think about. Uh, let's do one or two more. Okay. Uh, here's a letter from. Uh, it's just signed off as FNI. Hello, FNI. Hi. Um, hey, Bibbs and Mestrepeda McFrio. McFrido. McFrio. Excuse me. Okay. Mr. Peter McFrio, which is Rockmeister McCool in Portuguese. Nice. Uh, I'm Fabio, who, uh, who goes by uh, Vidan Alata. I'm going to massacre this. Vidan Alata on Twitter. Okay. Uh, writing from Brazil. Hello. Hello from Brazil. Um, uh, I could go on and on about our own dumb fascistic president, but that's not what I want to talk about. Uh, but it is part of it since you guys are in a, uh, are a great part of my attempt to not get flooded with all the bullshit. Mm. I started to follow your podcasts with critically acclaimed number 13 uh, when you talk about the Orca movie (laughs) and ever since you've been a part of my life. I plan to write a list of Brazilian movies that you should try to get to since Bibbs once commented that he wanted to know more about it. That's very true. And we here had a period during our military dictatorship where the only movies that were made were softcore porn, basically. And then in the 90s and 2000s, we had a period called Retomada or Resuming. And that is the time period you should go to if you wanted to start with our cinema. Great. Uh, uh, There were a few things that I wanted to talk about that escaped me now. But since I wrote this, I could keep going another time. Uh, Just to say, I'm a great fan of yours and uh, you helped me a great deal. Just be safe, guys. FNI. And uh, Uh, yeah, you be safe, too. And and I would love, please, I would actually really, really love to learn more about Brazilian cinema. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not a lot of it gets over in America, or at the very least, not a lot of it does with any fanfare or, like, notoriety. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, if we looked hard at various streaming services, we could find some. But it's not necessarily very well curated. And it's Mm -hmm. hard to, there's not a lot of discourse about it to, like, look into and say what is what is considered great Brazilian cinema, what is not, you know? Mm. Uh, and that's true for a lot of different countries all around the world. 
yeah, I'm sure wherever you are, I'm sure you can think of at least a couple of countries where mm. you know next to nothing about their movies, and they probably make a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. So I've been trying to be more, uh, a little bit more aggressive in experiencing international cinema, but I've got so much catching up to do. Yeah, <laughs> like, I would a, love to become an expert in the in the cinema of every single country, and I just it's it's a lot. Uh, from what I understand, there's a really great film uh, playing right now. You can get it at like Lemley's Virtual Cinemas from Cote d'Ivoire. Mm. I don't think I've seen any films from Cote d'Ivoire, so that would be a first for me. Yeah, that's um, cool. Yeah, just I, I want to see one fun film from at least every country. There you go. That'd be great. Yeah. So, uh, so please write it. Write it. We would love to read that list. Please write in with that mm-hmm. list. Put like a star on it or something, so when yeah, you can find yeah. it, we can read it in another episode or two, yeah. uh, or however long it takes. You know, no rush. Yeah. Uh, a couple more. One yeah, more. yeah, that was that was pretty brief actually. Right. We got we had time for a few. more uh, Here's a letter from Cecil. Okay, hi Cecil. Uh, hi Bibbs and Rocky. Hello. Uh, I've seen a lot of movies because of you guys. Uh, my favorite is The Silence of the Hams. Yay! <laughs> that makes me happy. The Silence of the Hams is so good. I still well, haven't even seen it, and I know how much Whitney you, loves it. You want to borrow my VHS? I have one. Yes. The Silence yes, of the Hams. Okay. The Silence of the Hams <laughs> is this really ambitious slapstick comedy spoof movie. It sounds really stupid because it's called The Silence of the Hams. It's, it's a spoof movie. Of course it's really stupid. It's a spoof movie. One of my was... favorite spoof movies is called Jane Austen's Mafia. That's a stupid <laughs> title. It's supposed to be. That's Jane, the joke. Jane Austen's Mafia is also pretty good. Yeah. Um, it was uh, made by an Italian filmmaker named Ezio Greggio who was uh, plucked from uh, Italy's comedy world personally by Mel Brooks. He was actually looking for a protege yeah. and found this guy, Ezio Greggio, and he made The Silence of the Lambs and it, silence, excuse me, The Silence of the Hams. And because ham is funny. It, it's one of those like gag, like four gags a second kind of movies. And some of them don't land, but most of them do. It's completely stupid. And I love it. Cool. The Hannibal Lecter character is played by Dom DeLuise. Of course he is. The Jodie Foster character is played by Billy Zane. <laughs> Okay. There's uh, you know, cameos from like Larry Storch and uh, uh, wow, the John Larry Aston, Storch. the Larry Storch, and <laughs> John Aston. And you're able to get Larry Storch in your movie. There's a completely bizarre uh, <laughs> cameo right at the beginning with Joe Dante and John Carpenter. What? <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't know about. That's yeah, funny. The, okay. the, the scene goes: uh, Joe Dante is on his back on a street, clutching his chest, having just been shot. We don't see it happen. <laughs> okay. He's just dying on a sidewalk. And he, he says, and, and John Carpenter's grabbing his lapels, tell me who did this man? Okay. And and, the, and it, they set up a gag and it pays off. I don't want to say what the gag oh is. Oh my God, that's, but yeah, wow. Joe, Joe Dante and John Carpenter have a scene together in that's, this movie. Okay, that, that went from one of these days I'm going to get to it because when he likes that movie, oh. to I am definitely getting to that movie. That movie sounds amazing. I, I think you'll hate it. But anyway. Oh, really? Um, I love I don't stupid know. movies. All right, maybe you'll love it. I, 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 love, that, I, love, I love brain donors as much as you do. I love freaked as much as you do. I love loaded weapon more than you do. <laughs> uh, it just makes me guffaw. Uh, I have also watched a lot of strange movies because of you guys. Uh, the Love Witch. Oh, there you uh, go. The Watermelon Woman. Yeah. Uh, would you kill a child? And uh, who would who 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 could kill a child? Who could kill a child? I think that's the official title. And, but yes. And a uh, perfume to name a few. Have you seen perfume? I know that one's all you, baby. It's a Tom Tick for a film. Yeah, that, yeah. that's re- that's a really good movie. Yeah. Serial killer movie about a, a mad perfumist. Um, Sounds like a I think Batman it, villain. Yeah, I think it's important for me to find movies people talk about as classics as well as obscure ones. This is true. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to recommend a movie to someone that I think they'll love, but they have never heard of before. Double that if I own it and can just give it to them. That's why yeah. I have this DVD collection. That's mostly uh, that. That said, 
watch This Is Not a Film. Cheers to Cecil. <laughs> <laughs> Just a re- recommendation. Uh, that's, that's um, I think it's an Iranian film, This Is Not a Film. I believe so, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was made by somebody who was in lockdown. Yeah. And they had to call it that so they could well, sneak it out of the country. Lockdown is, I think, people, a lot of people think that. It's like, that. This isn't like COVID. Not COVID, like, he was under house arrest. He was under yeah. house arrest for being like, being, like political mm-hmm. and uh, he wasn't allowed to make movies. And so he made movies on the sly on his phone and had to like sneak it out of the country on like a flash mm-hmm. drive. And, uh, it's a pretty fucking amazing story. All right, let's yeah. move on. Okay, um, here's a letter from Hayden. Hello, Hayden. Hi. Uh, hello. The other day... Uh, I and a friend of mine were discussing the film The Brown Bunny oh, and the career yeah. of Vincent Gallo, for a, which for those uninformed basically died after the release of the film just mentioned. On sites like Letterboxd, there's a good amount of people who ascribe that narrative to Roger Ebert ruining Vincent Gallo's career after he deemed The Brown Bunny, quote, the worst thing to have ever premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, there, and if you were around in like 2003, it was this huge back and forth I, between Ebert and Vincent Gallo. It's an extremely common thing in my experience over my lifetime for movies to be either like, oh, they had a 20 minute standing ovation. And I'm mm-hmm. like, really? Because I would get tired and sit down. <laughs> and also people would be like, yes, people were booing. Everyone left the theater. Like the, the, the crowd at Cannes is really really not shy of telling you how they feel about your movie, no, whether they love it or no, hate no. it. And there's a lot of movies, sometimes really, really good movies that get like the worst reputation at Cannes. Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas mm. got booed at Cannes. Um, I remember um, Personal Shopper got a big standing ovation at Cannes and at another screening it got booed at Cannes. Mm. <laughs> so, I like, Personal Shopper's very good. Very, very uh, good. I, I'm a big, big fan of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Whether or not it's a good film is a matter of some debate. Fair enough. Uh, uh, not, it's, it's kind of unwatchable in a lot of ways. Let's finish the, the uh, Anyway, um, yeah. it's kind of a long letter. So um, my friend does think that there is some truth to this statement. Well, I think it's 95% bullshit for the following reasons. One, Vincent Gallo is a humongous, Trump-loving, racist, sexist, homophobic asshole who was super competitive with Ebert and even put a death curse on him. Yeah, I heard about uh, that. Two, in general, the film wasn't that well received beyond wasn't that well received beyond ebert uh yet you could argue that ebert set the table for a film's reception as he uh, most as he at the time was the most famous critic on the planet but ebert was a famous detractor of blue velvet and a taste of cherry both respective filmmakers went on to have acclaimed careers yep you might not know it but rob reiner kept on making movies after ebert wrote i hated this movie hated hated, hated, hated this movie <laughs> about his film north and on top of uh, on top of all of it ebert gave a positive review after gallo's film after seeing it re-edited post can he did he gave it a, a three-star review yeah after it was cut down a little bit Yeah, because it was a different version of the film mm-hmm. you have to do that if the movie mm-hmm. changes dramatically yeah you know? and, and like... it was dramatic enough that now this makes sense yeah uh, there was a there's have you seen the brown bunny i saw the i didn't see the can cut i mm. saw the cut that got the actual yeah release, that, as, as did i there's a, a scene in the theatrical release where vincent gallo he's he's drifting across uh, america and he's stopping and talking to people and yeah every single uh, woman pondering. he meets has a flower name and it all mm, relates and, to baggage and, and, they, and yeah. they yeah they all fall in love with him and they are they in his mind he's clearly yeah. lost in his own head and yeah. plays like a really long yeah. student film and which it is and there's a scene where he stops and he gets on a motorcycle yeah, and he on the like the big salt flats out in the middle of the desert, and there's this one static shot where the camera's kind of locked down, and he gets on his motorcycle and he just drives into the distance, away lo- from the away camera, away from the camera, and it just yeah. stays on him, and he just vanishes, and then it cuts and it cuts to the next scene. He's back in the car and he's driving away. In the original cut, and I remember this from Ebert writing about I it. Uh, he 
that shot, he drives off and he vanishes into this in uh, over the horizon. He's just gone. And then there's a pause. And then we see the, this, the shot continues. We see him drive all the way back. It's like, okay, well the whole point of his, he's just disappearing into the landscape. Poignant image. Yeah. Disappearing and coming back out of the landscape and getting back in his car and driving away is just well, us watching a guy riding a motorcycle. Well, There's goes, no meaning to it, it anymore. It goes from, from having like something relevant to, mm. it goes from being relevant to the rest of the story to being a literal exercise in futility. It plays mm. like a joke. Yeah. If you do it that way. Mm. Um, is there more to the email? Yeah, there is. Okay, let's, um, let's finish that up. Yeah. Uh, plenty of things that have been critically reviled go on to be successful with audiences. Home Alone is now treated as a holiday classic, and it wasn't getting four stars left and right. Nope. You, you can be an asshole in Hollywood, but not an unpopular one, which Gallo is. His public feud with Ebert really didn't help his career. In two years, two years before, he called his underage star uh, some really nasty things. I don't want to repeat them. Uh, and basically a puppet. He does, uh, does he even deserve a career in the first place? Also, the guy uh, moved into Trump Tower. I didn't know that. I didn't hear about that. Oh, God. Mm. I don't um, know if that's true. That's I think crazy. he's doing just fine. However, for the sake of argument, let's ignore uh, the five minutes, uh, the five minute scene at the end of the movie and ask a question. Can a critic ruin a career? Yeah. Not really, but at least not 99% of the time. A critic reception can tarnish a film, but it's hard to find an instance where one critic ruined a film or director's chance at success. Uh, signed, signed uh, Hayden. Okay, uh, so real, real fast, Brown Bunny. Uh, it's exactly as we described it. Mm. Again, uh, the actual movie itself, mm. I don't think it's very good. I just don't. Uh, mm. And I, I didn't see the can cut. If it's worse than what I saw, I think that's a pretty. That sounds like a pretty bad movie. And I don't blame Ebert one mm. bit for doing his job and saying he thought the movie stank. Mm. Uh, that's the gig. Yeah. Uh, it's not like it's playing at like some tiny little festival. If it's playing at Cannes, it's already got its foot in the door. Mm. It's perfectly fair to say if it sucks or not. Um, regarding the question of, I, I, and I don't know enough about, I know I've heard well, things about Vincent Gallo. He doesn't seem like a cool guy, but I don't know anything about him well, really. He's, and he's I don't always really been a, to... a bit of a weirdo. You can go to his, yeah. uh, you, you can go to his website and rent him for sex yeah for a night like he's selling his body on his own website right which again i'm not gonna like decry mm. sex work but at the same time well i don't know what's up with that i don't know what like he's he, doing he, he, well he seems he's doing it because he has such strong genetic stock yeah like yeah. At, like he's he's That's essentially claim, studying yeah. himself out yeah like like he's a, a well like a racehorse or something yeah uh so i, I i'm not gonna speak to any of them uh regarding whether or not a critic can ruin a movie uh nope not today and that's a big difference uh there was a time when critics held a lot more sway mm. than they do now not necessarily explicitly in film there's actually people forget because people talk about film criticism all the time mm. there's a lot of other kinds of art criticism there's music criticism there's theater criticism there's food criticism there are worlds mm. in which a bad review from an esteemed uh, food critic can ruin a restaurant. Right. And there have been periods of time in which the critical community in the theater scene was so powerful that they could shut down a play if the mm. review was bad enough. Watch and the movie All About Eve for dramatization of that. All About Eve is a good example of that. Uh, this this was the world of the Algonquin Roundtable. Look that up. It's a fascinating <laughs> group of people. Basically, the wittiest people in New York City 
got together at a hotel called the Algonquin. They had a big round table for them all to sit at. And they were these local celebrities. And they would say dry, ribald, or mean things to each other. And then they would go off and they would write poetry or books or humorous essays. And a lot of them were also theater critics. And they could destroy a play in a night if Dorothy Parker hated your play. Mm. Uh, that was an actual reality. Nowadays, it's not really a thing. And I think because the art that we're talking about, particularly film, is so easily accessible now, than it, at least compared to what it used to be, people don't have to take a critic's word for it. Mm. You, it's so much easier to just check it out for yourself. And as a result, I think the idea of critics trying to protect the masses from what they considered bad art, which is, of course, gatekeeping, but... Uh, regardless, We're I think critics, that, that's what we do. It's I, kind of our profession. You know, but, yeah. there, there's a really bad way to do it, obviously. And uh, but I think that mentality has mostly died. And I think it's easy for some people to say, "No, critics didn't like I don't know Batman v Superman, mm -hmm. and that's why it didn't make a billion dollars." And I'm like. No, because if that were the case, then all the Transformers movies wouldn't have made that money. Yeah, because those things were panned. Um, yeah, it, it's the, the there's the, it's not a critic's responsibility to represent the opinions of the masses. Hmm. That's not the job. No, it's not like oh, I'm supposed to come here and say what most people think. No, you're supposed to say something interesting and insightful, and hopefully entertaining if you can if you can manage it, and get a conversation going that is. Can be very critical, but it's also fair. Hmm. That's what the job of a critic is. And sometimes people hmm. do not see something because a critic that they trust didn't care for it. Yeah. More often than not, they're likely to see something if a critic that they trust cared for it. And if they have any interest in seeing something, typically, even if a critic doesn't like it, they're still likely hmm. to see it because it's not that hard to do so. Well, uh, another big blow to, um, I'm not going to say critics' credibility, but... Um, critics control of uh, film conversation uh, came with the internet. Uh, yeah. When people could self-publish their own film reviews, uh, you, you no longer had to be sort of a vaunted expert or a professional writer to be published. Mm -hmm. uh, you could just publish your own opinions and now uh, just and anybody could write about film and film writing in general and sort of the, the, the tenor and the timbre of the conversation became a lot broader. Film yeah. writing as a hobby just became this huge activity. Yeah, now, anybody can just start their own blog about whatever movies they're watching. Uh, that unfortunately, sorry, knocking things over. Um, that unfortunately took away a lot of film writing as a profession. So you know, yeah. we, we got in at just the wrong time. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to make a living at it because yeah. there's so much of it out there yeah. on the upside. There's a lot more out there, and mm. I think that's better for the art form of criticism mm. to have more voices, more voices easily accessible. The fact that it was easier to make a living at being a film critic, for example, was a, an unfortunate side effect of there only being so many jobs to go around. Yeah, There was only so much of a market for it because everyone only read one or two newspapers. So... That was a different environment, but as a result, a lot of people got shut out of that conversation because there wasn't enough material to go around. Now, a lot more people can have their voices heard, and I think the discussion around film, I don't always agree with every avenue it takes, but I think in some respects it's never been better. At least it's about contemporary cinema. I think there's always a blind spot for older stuff, mm. but 
I think for contemporary cinema, I think we're actually in a really exciting place and it's getting better for the most part. But unfortunately, it's so readily available that fewer outlets are willing to pay for it. And that sucks because people are producing wonderful works of criticism, insightful, interesting, getting people excited about aspects of the medium that they never thought about before, recontextualizing new Mm. films and old films in ways that expand our awareness, not just of that film, not just of cinema, but of the world around us. Holy crap, that's fantastic. And I'm just going to say it, it's worth money. <laughs> the yeah, time yeah. and effort, I, I, we, it, a lot of people do it as a hobby, and that's fine. Some people have, are elevating it beyond that, even if they're not getting paid. They should get paid. Yeah, the, this. Uh, unfortunately, we're still in the spot, and we've talked about this before, how people have to sort of pay their dues. And that means write for free. Don't write for free. Don't write for free. Uh, don't write for free. Don't work don't write, for free. If, if, yeah, if, if you're... Uh, if they want your stuff, they want your stuff for money. Yeah. And, and, and it has nego- value to and, them. And negotiate Therefore, make them pay for and, it. And yeah. negotiate it and really elbow them. And if everybody does that, they're not going to take stuff for free. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to have to start paying people. Yeah. And they will change the uh, system around a little bit, but it, the yeah. system needs changing. So let but, it happen. But uh, because there are so many opinions out there and because they're so varied and because so many people can now gather in groups around common opinions around films they love or films they hate. Mm. Uh, the idea of a critic writing a review and undoing a film's success is churlish and foolish to even think of now. There's no critic uh, who has that much power yeah, for now, more than maybe a small group of people. You know, who does have the power are fans, groups of fans. Yeah. Uh, look at something like, um, the example I'm going to cite here, and there are plenty to choose from, is Spider-Man 3, the uh. Sam Raimi film. Uh, Sam Raimi made Spider-Man 3, hugely expensive movie, gigantic special effects, and it was a hit. It made a it shocking ma- amount of money. It made a huge amount of money. It cost too much, so that it didn't uh, really make as much of a profit <clears throat> as it should, but that you just for mm. inflation today, I think they made over a billion dollars. It was a hit. Critics were warm on it, but more importantly, Critical, but... more importantly, you go on social media, and you get this sort of overarching tone of opinion mm-hmm. as to what this film is, and it was actually... Uh, very soon after its release started to feel a little bit reviled in like social media circles. Mm-hmm. People got really uh, mad about yeah, certain like, aspects of it. Oh, wait a minute. Well, there did this, I know I now I'm starting to notice this as a fan that they sandwiched it or they kind of shoehorned in uh, the sandwiched shoehorned in uh, the venom character. Yeah. He really doesn't belong in the story and I, it's kind of forced. And I, I don't there, think yeah. they even named the character in the movie in that movie. And this whole idea, oh, and there's that silly dance scene. And in fact, the scene where Tobey Maguire is possessed by this evil alien intelligence and starts doing dances and is a lot more confident now, became so hated uh, among a certain circle of fans that it was even spoofed in uh, the Spider-Man animated film years oh, later. Yeah. And they're a little, as a sort of a mildly embarrassing moment yeah, this, for Spider-Man. This, this yeah. was an embarrassing moment for Spider-Man and they animated that scene again. Uh, that's now popular opinion and that popular yeah. opinion outside of what the critics are saying is now holding sway over what's getting held in the consciousness and what's getting sequels and what's being made. Well, that's kind of behind something I've said for a long mm. time, which is that time is the only critic that matters. Yeah. Uh, you can be popular in your day and then, you know, 10 years later you can be largely reviled or mocked or whatever. And then 20 years later, that whole thing can change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes the critics are behind that. I think that there's a lot of movies that are in the popular consciousness 
and there's they'll always be talked about because people keep talking about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something like there's been like even like when Joel Schumacher died, I think there was even a bit of a moment where people were reassessing Batman and Robin and saying, okay, maybe it's not you know conventionally good, but isn't it interesting? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, yeah, that's fair. They put a lot of thought and yeah. interesting things into that. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, we we can have that conversation. That's cool. Um, but I think one of the things that critics can do. Uh, and again, I don't even agree with all of the fan waves of every mm. single movie, but I think one of the things that critics can do is remind people of older movies or television or other media mm. uh, that aren't being discussed as often and aren't being discussed whether or not like Spider-Man 3 comes up regardless because we're still talking about Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. But when was the last time you heard someone talk about Chill Factor? You know, it's like it's only it's only us. This is the only podcast that ever brings that movie up, and it's, and we do it mostly as a joke. But it's up to critics, people who actually have take the time and responsibility, take responsibility seriously, mm-hmm. to watch older stuff, even if it isn't, even if it doesn't seem relevant to what's going on, like in popular culture today, mm-hmm. and reminding people and saying, "Hey, I just saw this movie. This movie's amazing." This movie is not talked about enough. We should talk about this movie more. That's how we got on a silver platter Citizen Kane. Mm. A movie that was had, you know, big scandal when it came out, won an Academy Award, critics liked it fine, took about 10 years for that thing for critics to actually say, "No, we really think this one's amazing." And because critics kept talking about it, other people did too. Mm. So I think that's one of the biggest responsibilities of a film critic is to keep talking about movies that other people aren't necessarily talking about so that they don't go away. Mm. And at the very least, people are aware of them and that they know to look at them. And if they come up and the opportunity to watch them arises, mm. we have an op- we, they'll do so. And then maybe that movie will come back in some way and its reputation will be redeemed or it will go from obscure to popular or vice versa if it turns out it's bad. Mm. Um, anyway, that's my take. <laughs> on I, that, so I think I think the responsibility of film, film critics is less to shut a movie down and more to uh, find a way to preserve it. Yeah, yeah if it's good, I, if it's worth, if it's worthwhile, and every once in a while to speak I truth did, to power and say like, hey, this movie that's very popular has these flaws. Yeah, you, know, um, you got to be honest about it if that's what you see. I I, I get the feeling though that um, we're we're not doing so much of that control anymore as critics. Uh, in fact. It's our, my voice is going, uh, it's yeah. our job to really, this will be the last letter. to kind of fight against the tide of popular opinion, which is the thing that's actually shaping the conversation more than anything. Right. Uh, and try to cut through all of the, all of the hype and all of the thrill of like an, an opening weekend to talk about the film as it is. Right. I think that's, uh, that's so, a, so con- from a contemporary perspective. Yeah. yeah, I agree. That's, so, what, that's uh, the biggest it, yeah. part of the job mm-hmm. in many regards. And, and I'm not trying to sort of put critics in sort of this victim position because that's no. BS. We're not victims or warriors of any sort. No. But we we are uh, uh, well, not. Maybe not a few ju- are. I think of a couple, maybe. Well, maybe a couple. In that title, uh, but yeah. But- but we're we're uh, we're in this position now where we have to, uh, as critics, be a little bit more uh, stalwart in our opinions and really kind of step forward because we because we have so little power over a film's success, mm-hmm. uh, and really try to speak out against the powers that be, not just the filmmakers, not just the studios, but also the crashing wave of excitement that comes hand in glove with uh, the advertising machine, right. 
And I think uh, that often paints critics in this light that we are... That we're all sour pussies. Yeah, we're all, we're all trying to let the air mm. out of the room or whatever. And uh, I would argue that sometimes that's necessary. Mm. Um, it's some, not something you should do just for the hell of it. You should always have a rationale. You should always have a point. Uh, you should always have a genuine observation. You shouldn't do it just for its own sake. But if everyone's celebrating something and you mm. say it has a lot of flaws and I disagree with you on this, you need to be able as a critic to say that. Yeah. And yeah, some people aren't going to like it, but it's the responsibility. You have to be honest about what you saw and be able to explain what you saw so that other people can see it too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's, there's a film, yeah. there's a film coming out. That's getting great reviews. It's going to be widely loved. It's going to be widely successful. And I didn't like it. Uh, and, uh, and we'll talk about that when we get to it on critically acclaimed. Looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, critically acclaimed is a little late this week. We thought we'd bang out uh, a we've got mail. Uh, since we could, hmm. um, I was working out some paperwork and stuff like that. I just couldn't get through uh, all the movies, but we'll, we'll be back with that real soon. Hmm. I'll be watching a lot of movies tomorrow. Very excited. Thank you, everybody who run into We've Got Mail. Uh, if you want to write in, once again, our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. That's letters at critically acclaimed.net. Feel free to ask us anything you want about anything you want, and uh, we might answer it on an upcoming We've Got Mail. We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons without whom this show mm. and all the other shows would not be possible. And if you want to join our Patreon, we have a lot of various tiers. Some of them are the lowest is $1 a month. And for $1 a month, you get an additional bonus weekly podcast all dedicated to the 1960s Batman show. We also have other exclusive shows at different tiers, including shows about Disney, the Academy Awards, every single episode of Star Trek, commentary tracks. You get to vote for future episodes of our shows. It's a whole thing. Mm. So thank you very, very much to everybody. You're awesome. Thank you for joining us. And if you can't afford to be part of our Patreon, leave us a review if you can, wherever you find us. Tell people about the show if they're looking for recommendations. That would be really, really great too. And of course, over at Etsy, Salt Cat Soap. A lot of soaps over there. Buy, buy their soap. And we're selling them. And uh, coming soon, we're going to have a bunch of new designs. I'm very excited to uh, reveal what M. Lapis de Silva has got for you because these ones are really cool. Like, the other ones are cool, too, but I'm like, I'm really excited about some of them. I really want to <laughs> can't wait to share them with some people. So keep, keep an eye out on the Salt Cat Soap Twitter page, at Salt Cat Soap, or at Salt Cat Soap on Instagram. And I guess that's uh, about that. <laughs> Thanks for writing in. We we appreciate having the conversation with you. Sincerely yours. Bibs and winning. <laughs>